Please turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3, we're going to read this entire chapter and focus on it this morning as our, as our preaching passage. Joshua chapter 3, 1 through 17. We're uh, right uh, after Israel has uh, uh, made its way up to the, uh, the promised land, the outskirts of the promised land. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan and meet a whole host of enemies and difficult foes on the other side. And God gives them some very important instructions here in Joshua chapter 3. We read beginning at verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before." Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephon, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arava, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. We're going to end our reading of God's Word there. May He bless it to our lives.
Well, I'm sure you've noticed that we have entered, once again, another election season. Uh, there are ballots, and there are initiatives, and there are propositions, and there are recommendations on how to vote flowing through the mailboxes lately, piling up on our counters in our kitchens. And if you're like me, uh, many of you may be feeling uncertain and maybe a little fearful about the future of our city, our state, our nation as a whole. It seems like whenever there's a change in leadership uh, following an election, we, we wonder whether, whether the next leader will be uh, as good as the other, whether he or she will be worse than the other leader. There's a shroud of uncertainty that sort of hangs over a nation uh, following an election cycle. And in many senses, the book of Joshua uh, as a whole it is about a big change in leadership over the people of Israel. At the end of the book just prior to Joshua in the Scriptures, the book of Deuteronomy, we read that Moses died. Now, that great servant of the Lord who, who defied Pharaoh, uh, who, who directed the people in the wilderness, who led them uh, through the Red Sea, that leader is now gone. And now his right-hand man, Joshua, has taken over the reins of leadership in Israel. And, and, and questions sort of linger over the beginning of the book of Joshua. How will he do in this new role? How will the people of Israel fare under his leadership? Will, will he lead them the same way that his predecessor did? Will he follow in the footsteps of Moses and, and lead the people into victory? over their Canaanite enemies. There's some uncertainty that hovers over Israel like a thick morning fog. And yet the passage we just read was meant to show the events recorded here are meant to show Joshua and Israel that they had no real reason to doubt. They had no reason to worry because of a great promise that God had made to Joshua when He called him to the task of leading Israel. It's a passage we know very well. And back in Deuteronomy 31, verse 23, the Lord commanded Joshua, saying, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them. And why was that promise good news for the people of Israel? Because of what God said next. He said to Joshua, I will be with you. I will be with you. And we see that same promise of God's presence, God's power with Joshua and the people of Israel in verse 7 of our own passage we read this morning. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Israel didn't need to worry because God had appointed Joshua to his task. God would equip him with spiritual wisdom and power. God would do amazing things to lead his people into the promised land. And the lesson Israel needed to learn from the very beginning, from the outset, was that her life and her success and her victory, her security, would not ultimately be won by Joshua. It wouldn't be won by their armies. It would be accomplished by their God. Those who trust in God are mainly spectators. 
of the great drama of God's sovereign care over His covenant people. And the same is true of us. The account before us that we're going to look at this morning teaches us to to wait humbly upon the Lord in our lives, to follow His, His commands as the path of true blessedness and prepare ourselves to sit back and watch as the Lord meets our needs, both physical and spiritual, in wonderful and ordinary ways, most especially through our Lord Jesus Christ. First, the Lord teaches Israel and us to prepare for the wonders of God. At the heart of this account in chapter 3 is God's promise, which is coupled with a, with a command in verse 5. And if you're a cadet, this passage should be very familiar to you because this is your theme verse for the year. In verse 5, we read this, And Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And it's important for us to notice right off the bat that, that that promise that God would be with Israel, He would act on her behalf, that promise couldn't have come at a better time for the people of Israel. Because as they stood here, camped on the plains of Moab, just northeast of the Dead Sea, they were in a very difficult position. They were in a precarious spot. As I said before, this was uh, an unsettling time for the people of Israel. They were getting used to a new leader. But they were also preparing themselves to enter the land of Canaan, a land filled with, with powerful men. You remember that Joshua and Caleb and some of the other spies had had scouted out the land and they came back and they said, we feel this small compared to the giants and the powerful men of Canaan. We feel like grasshoppers compared to them. And before they even got into Canaan, they had to move west across the Jordan River to get there. Now, if you're imagining the Jordan River in your mind as a tranquil, bubbling brook, or a lazy river for tubing, uh, get that image out of your head right away. Verse 15 tells us something about what the river was like at this time. It was a rushing torrent of water because of all the, the, the melting snow from the mountains. Not only did the people face an impossible journey just to get to the outskirts of Canaan, there was an even greater enemy on the other side in Jericho. It was a precarious position, a fearful situation for the people of Israel, and they should have realized at that moment that God Himself would have to step in. God would have to intervene. He would have to do something wonderful. He would have to do amazing things for His people if they were ever going to enter the land and be successful in driving out their enemies. And that's exactly the lesson that God intends to to teach His people. He wants to teach them that that this is all about Him, really. It's all about the wonders of His powerful presence and His leadership that would secure a homeland, secure a sacred space for His covenant people in the promised land. This is God's show. The people are spectators. And the proof of that is seen in the the prominent presence of the Ark of the Covenant here. 
not just in chapter 3, but also in chapter 4. We read about the Ark of the Covenant 17 times in chapters 3 and 4 here, and that's deliberate. The author is drawing our attention to the Ark of the Covenant, this great symbol of God's power, God's presence among His people. We read about it here first in in verse 3. Uh, God, uh, Joshua is to command the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levites, you shall set out from your place and follow it. This is rather remarkable. The ark of the covenant was supposed to go in front of the people. They were commanded to follow it. At every turn, it's God Himself who proves that He is the leader. He's the guide for His people. He's the one who would, who would cut the waters of the Jordan in two and hold them back, as it were, with His hands. He's the one who would lead them into Canaan. He would win their battles. He would secure their place and finish what He had begun back in Egypt. It's God's show. And the people are simply called to stand back and watch and marvel. Quite literally, God tells them to stand back. He tells them to stand back to get a good view. In verse 4, He he says, um, there shall be a distance between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits. Don't come too near, He says, so that you may know the way to go, for you have not passed this way before. The people are called to stand back a bit, not only so that they can see where to go and know how to follow the Levites, but so that they can witness this miracle of the parting of the Jordan River. But you notice it's not just the distance that would help God's people prepare to marvel at God's wonders. The attitude of their hearts also needed to be sanctified. Their hearts needed to be readied to receive God's miraculous provision. Look at verse 5 here. Jesus, or Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Whenever God promised that He was going to act in a mighty way for His people, He often called them to ready themselves to consecrate themselves. That would have involved washing their clothes, washing their bodies, um, engaging in sexual purity, confessing their sins before the Lord. God, through Joshua, says to the people, you must prepare yourself for what's going to happen. It's essential that their hearts are ready to recognize the care and the deliverance that God is going to give them, that it's all His work. They need to have proper insight, proper anticipation in order to grasp the true importance and significance of what God was about to do for them. When I was a younger, young boy, uh, my parents took me and my sisters on a trip to the Canyonlands. And of course, the climax of that trip was seeing the Grand Canyon, which I had never seen before. And along the way, while we were in the car, uh, traveling those many miles, I had a couple books to read on the Grand Canyon. 
And so I was reading all sorts of interesting facts about the Grand Canyon, how it came to be formed, how long it took to be formed. Uh, I learned the in, in, interesting fact that uh, you can fit the entire state of Rhode Island within the Grand Canyon. And so when I finally got there and I stood on the edge of this great chasm and I looked out over this, this giant crater, I could appreciate it. I could understand it. I, I had prepared myself through reading about the Grand Canyon so that I had a great perspective from which to view it. I didn't just stand there and say, yep, it's a big hole. I could praise God. I could glorify and acknowledge Him as the, the creator and sustainer of such a marvelous world because I had prepared myself to receive the wonders of God. And that's an important lesson for us as believers. If we're going to appreciate God's work in our lives on our behalf, if, if God's wonders, His care over our lives, if that's going to strengthen our faith and, and, and bolster our resolve to serve Him and love Him, then we need to be prepared. We need to be expectant to receive these gifts from Him. Now, to be sure, God normally provides for our daily bread in fairly ordinary ways. He's not likely to part the lanes of the freeway tomorrow morning so that you can make it to work in record time. I don't suggest you pray for that. But the basic principle still holds. Have we consecrated our hearts? Have we made them subservient, submissive to God's will? Have we become expectant and ready so that every gift from God's hand, whether it's miraculous or ordinary, is welcomed and received by us with a spirit of faith, a spirit of gratitude. So often we fail to detect God's wonders, even in the ordinary affairs of our lives, simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see everything that we have as a gift from Him. So often we fail to be in awe of God in worship. We come here with a yawn rather than like that child standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon because we don't take time during the week to prepare ourselves through the reading of Scripture, through prayer, through humbling ourselves in the confession of sin so that when we get here, we are amazed at God's immense holiness. We must prepare ourselves to receive God's wondrous provision in our lives so that we properly benefit from God's care, so that we acknowledge Him as the giver of all good gifts. But once we've done that, once we've prepared our hearts to receive the wonders of God, we cannot help, secondly, but to have a, a sense of trust in God, that God is more than adequate to sustain our lives and to fill our lives. We must trust that God's promised power, His presence, will meet all of our needs without any lack. And that was another lesson that the, the people of Israel needed to learn. Joshua said to them, beginning in verse 10, here is how you will know that the living God is among you and that He will without fail drive out 
Before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. How would they know? Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. God is leading them. Verse 13, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. They shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This is how you will know. You might call this Almighty God logic. If God can divert the rushing Jordan, O Israel, He can defeat enemy Jebusites. If God could get His people over the torrential waters and into the land, would He not surely give them the land and drive out any foe before them? The Apostle Paul uses the same logic in Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The God who rescued His people from Egyptian slavery, who preserved them in the desert, who brought them back from exile, the God who has given us His only Son as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, whose death and resurrection has given us a living hope that can never spoil or fade or be destroyed. This God who is with us, how will He not care for every one of our troubles, whether great or small? This is how you shall know that God is among you by His presence, His power, acting on your behalf. We know that we serve this God, a living God, whose power has no limits, who is working among us even now to glorify His name by caring for us covenant children day after day after day. And the question that remains is, do you trust Him? Do you love Him? Can you confess the words of Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism that you believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and upholds them and rules them by His eternal counsel and providence, is my God, my Father for the sake of Jesus Christ? Can you confess that you trust God so much that you do not doubt that He will provide Whatever you need for body and soul, and will turn to your good, whatever adversity He sends upon you in this veil of tears. Do you confess that He is able to do this because He's Almighty God, and that He desires to do it because He is your faithful Father? Do you trust Him when His methods are difficult to fathom? and understand. You see, when we confess that we trust our Heavenly Father to provide for all of our needs, we must understand what we are confessing. Because we are also confessing that we trust that God is supremely wise in deciding what is the best way to meet our needs. 
And that's hard. We like the first part of that, trusting God to meet all of our needs. That part's easy. But boy, we really want to have a say in how He does that, don't we? Notice in the case of Israel that the way God chose to demonstrate His power and His presence in Israel was strange, maybe unexpected. God chose the worst season of the year to cross His people over the Jordan River. The worst time of the year. As they said before, verse 15 tells us that the Jordan was very difficult to pass over this time of year for a couple reasons. As they said, the, water, the, the river was, was flooded. It was flowing quickly from all the, the water coming down from the mountains. It was a, not a small river either. The floodplain uh, flood ranged from 200 yards to a mile. And it was packed with tangled brush and overgrowth. And we wonder, why would God lead His people through the river under these impossible circumstances? I think based on Scripture, our answer could be, this is our God's way. This is how God does things. The God who reveals Himself to us is a God who takes particular delight in ordaining difficult circumstances to serve as the perfect context in which He proves to the whole world His unrivaled power on behalf of His people. One commentator, Dale Davis, writes, God delights to show His might in the face of utter helplessness so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. There's a strangeness about God's method, and yet there's a method in His quote-unquote madness. Perhaps He brings us into impossible circumstances, situations so bleak and hopeless for the very purpose of impressing upon us that if we make it through, if we endure it, if we are not overwhelmed and washed away, it will be only because of His grace and His power. Is this His way of teaching us our own inability and helplessness in order that we may realize that our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I believe it is. And it's a method nowhere presented so beautifully than at the cross of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness, strange to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God that God would send His only begotten Son to take on our flesh and sin and bear the weight of His judgment against our guilt in order to free us from death and sin forever. That message is a stumbling block to most. But to those who are called, Paul says, it's the power, it's the wisdom of God. When God brings trials into your life that leave you questioning, why? Why, O oh Lord, have you chosen this painful, strange, inscrutable method to sanctify me? Remember that your God is 
God of the cross, where in the eyes of the world a most vile and foolish and strange thing took place, but through which God rescued you forever from sin and death. If God can turn the cross to your glory and your salvation, He can use whatever trial He sends into your life for your good and for your salvation. Our living God is the God of wonders who lives among us. He's the God who has begun your salvation, and He has the will, and He has the desire, He has the power to finish your salvation unto His glory. At the Jordan River, where God stood in the midst of it and parted it, as it were, with His own hands, Israel learned an important lesson. That God hadn't brought them out of Egypt just to leave them in the desert to finish their own salvation. He was with them. He was leading them. He was bringing their redemption to completion. And He's also doing that in you. The same God who began a good work in you will most certainly be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Love Him. Obey Him. Trust in the God of wonders. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are amazed at the magnificent, amazing, and ordinary ways that You have cared for Your church through all ages. We pray that we would regularly, routinely ready our hearts so that we are expectant and anticipating the many ways that You care for us. We pray that You would instill in us a greater trust, a greater faith, to know that You are working all things together for our salvation, for our good, even when You bring us through inscrutable trials that leave us questioning why. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we have proof positive that You are a God who uses all kinds of methods for Your glory and for our salvation to sanctify us, to confirm us as Your children, to prove to us time and time again that You are our faithful Heavenly Father, that You can care for us because You are Almighty God, and You will care for us because You love us in Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with conviction, courage, comfort, and joy this day as we meditate upon these wonderful truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.